Welcome back to another episode of A Daisy Woman Podcast. I am your host, Sonia Gokwai, and the voices I am seeking may have never been heard before, but their stories deserve to be told. What is a Daisy Woman? She is a dynamic, fearless, and strong woman. She is your mother, your grandmother, your daughter, your sister. She is every one of us who is on an endless pursuit of self-empowerment and fulfillment. I am Sonia Gokhlai, and I am a Desi woman. Hello, and welcome to another edition of A Desi Woman Podcast. I am your host, Sonia Gokhlai, and today we are so excited to be joined by journalist Rika Sharma Rani. Rika is an award-winning freelance journalist whose work has been featured in The Atlantic, The New York Times, Politico Magazine, The Ello Times, and many more. She is also a contributing editor for The Fuller Project, a nonprofit news organization focused on issues impacting women. Rika's reporting, which includes coverage of family separation at the border, women's health, and COVID-19, has been recognized by the American Society of Journalists and authors and the Milwaukee Press Club. Before becoming a journalist, Rika worked extensively in the global health space, including as part of a team that negotiated drug prices for the treatment of HIV AIDS in low-income settings. Rika received her master's degree from Columbia University School of International and Public Affairs. Rika, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Rika, you are one of the few female South Asian journalists in this country who doesn't shy away from covering complex stories that are of critical importance to this country. I would argue that your perspective as a journalist and a woman of color is needed more than ever in today's media landscape. We are a diverse country that was built in large part by immigrants such as yourself. In fact, you were reporting from the U.S.-Mexico border in the fall of 2017 during the ongoing family separation crisis to provide firsthand accounts from the scene. This had to be a challenging assignment. And so my first question is, how does your background as a South Asian woman enable you to cover stories about immigration, criminal justice reform, or human trafficking from a different lens than most journalists. Well, thank you so much for those kind words. I think being the daughter of South Asian immigrants who came to North America relatively recently, my parents are in Canada, and I've been living in the States uh, since 2004, I think it allows me to approach the topic with more empathy than I might have otherwise. You know, in this particular case, I think you would have to be pretty heartless to not feel empathy when you're dealing with a subject like family separation at the border. But I do think that the experience of being a child of immigrants gave me an appreciation for the immigrant story writ large and why people come to the United States to pursue you know, a better life for their children. That's a really personal story for me. And I think for, for all immigrants or children of immigrants, I think that often gets glazed over a little bit in the media in terms of why people come and also the role that countries in the West, like the United States have played in creating the conditions that force people to come. So when you're talking about countries in Central America, that really were sort of pawns in the Cold War 
we, we played a role in creating the conditions and the violence and seeding the sort of the kind of thing that drives people to come over the border. And I think that often gets glazed over. And so I was trying really consciously in my reporting about family separation to report on what was going on with that in mind and just with with that empathy in mind. And that doesn't mean that you're not covering it objectively. I think as a journalist, you're, you know, you're reporting the facts, but I think having that context is really important. And I'm, you know, our roots are from a country, I'm not sure where you're from, but I'm, my parents immigrated from India and, you know, it's a country that was colonized. And so I'm acutely sensitive to, you know, the, you know, Western countries creating conditions for people to have to flee. And so I think just having that history, that context really allowed me to pursue that story, I think in a more comprehensive way and possibly, I don't know, made sources trust me a little bit more knowing that I'm, you know, an immigrant myself. (laughs) Right. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, no. And and I was going to ask you what the experience was like emotionally reporting from the U.S.-Mexico border. And if you had to kind of keep your emotions at bay as you strive to cover the stories, I mean, I think I, I just have to say you have to be one of the only South Asian journalists and especially women that have been in that area. And we've seen the video and the pictures and it's just very daunting. So I really wanted to ask you about that. Yeah. This was a tough one. Um, I traveled to El Paso, Texas, I believe in February of 2018, before the story had really broken nationally in a really big way. And it was, first of all, just a really difficult story to report because you're dealing with people who have a real fear of being deported. They're fleeing violence in a lot of cases. And so talking to a member of the media isn't something that that many of them are comfortable doing. So just sort of trying to parse out what was happening and understand what was going on was really tough. You know, and this was before we really knew what was going on. So really trying to dig into that. I mean, emotionally, I ju- you know, I remember speaking with a mother from Brazil who was in detention in El Paso and had been separated from her 2-year-old son. And she was, you know, I don't know if you want to say, you know, one of the lucky ones, but her son was with her husband who had come to the United States, I think a few years prior. So she knew he was safe, but still, you know, she had had to experience from her arms and she was just distraught. I mean, you know, we had to, her, her lawyer had to sneak a cell phone into the detention room in order for me to speak with her because ICE officials weren't, you know, you're not allowed to take phones in and to, to speak with, with people. And it was devastating. You know, I'm a mom, I've got two daughters and that made it personal in a lot of ways. Cause you can't help but imagine how you would feel in that situation. You know, if you were in another country and the government just seized your children and didn't tell you where they were, it was pretty horrific to imagine. So yeah, that was a really emotionally tough story. And of course, it ended up being one of the biggest 
stories of the year for, you know, obvious reasons. Riga, you wrote an incredibly insightful and detailed article for The Atlantic about Vice President-elect Kamala Devi Harris's mother, Shamala Gopalan. I wanted to compliment you on that piece as it was so beautifully researched and included a plethora of fascinating details about the Gopalan family and the extraordinary woman, Shamala, who, according to the article, quote, spent much of her life fitting in where she wasn't supposed to, end quote. I wanted to underscore for our listeners who may not be aware just how unusual it was for a 19-year-old Shamala Gopalan to come and study at Berkeley in 1958. As your article aptly points out, there were harshly discriminatory immigration laws in place, which capped the number of Indians allowed to move to the United States at just 100 people a year. Shamala Gopalan became one of just 12,000 Indian Americans living in the country at the time. So my question for you is, what does this reveal about the Gopalan family? I would argue that it's such a refreshing and rare example of female empowerment that in 1958, this courageous young Indian woman could set out halfway around the world to pursue her educational dreams with the full support of her family. So I wanted to hear more from you about this amazing article and the research that went into it. So I started working on this piece actually in late 2019 when Kamala Harris was running for president in the Democratic primary. And so I'd done all this reporting and then, you know, we were just nearing the end of our editing process when she dropped out of the race. <laughs> so that was pretty devastating. But luckily we were able to re- resurrect the piece when she was selected as Joe Biden's vice president in, in the, uh, this year. But I think the thing that that made me want to do this piece was, you know, I had seen profiles of Kamala Harris's mother before. Mine wasn't the first, but I, you know, a lot of it was sort of just telling her story, sort of the details of her story that she was an immigrant from India, that she had become a scientist. And when I read these pieces, I was like, she did what? <laughs> Exactly. (laughs) What? Like, it was just, I mean, her story was so distinctive from everything that I understand about Indian culture as somebody who has grown up in that culture. And so I was astounded at some of her choices. I know. I mean, you know, she, just the fact that she chose her own spouse rather than get an arranged marriage, the fact that she chose a spouse who was Black. The fact that she divorced and raised her daughters as a single mother and then raised them in the Black community. These are not choices that even now are very common. And so I think that being South Asian, you sort of have to not, I'm not, you know, not to say that somebody who isn't South Asian couldn't have written the story, but I think the fact that I I am South Asian, I, I understand this culture in a in a really sort of intimate way. I could really see how unique this woman was and how you know different her story was from, for example, my own parents, right? Like their their experience of immigrating to Canada in their case. But I just really wanted to delve into that aspect of her story because I didn't feel like that uniqueness was coming across 
That makes so much sense because I, I couldn't agree with you more. I, I just absolutely had to talk to you about this when I saw your article on the topic because, you know, look, I consider my family to be fairly progressive and educated women, but this is beyond that. This is like a courageousness and supported by her family as well, wholeheartedly. And then just understanding the statistics that you laid out that, you know, I mean, she was maybe one of a hundred people allowed to come to the country on a yearly basis. Yeah. She made very bold choices. Now, you know, she came from a high caste family in India and obviously that played a part. Yes. Even still, you know, there were a lot of people from high caste families back then and not all of them came to the, to the United States. And I think one of the things that's really important to understand about her story is that she came before the Immigration Act of 1965. And that matters because most Indian immigrants to the country came after 1965 when that bill was passed and immigration quotas were, were eliminated, I believe, and, and restrictions were loosened. She came before that. And I think that delineation actually made a very big difference because she was actively involved in the civil rights movement in a way that you just didn't see Indian immigrants become involved post-1965. They were more concerned with being able to assimilate into the country. And so you just didn't see the sort of civil rights activism from from, uh, Indian immigrants that came after her. So yeah, it's a really unique story. Very unique story. And you know, I think that I really hope you do do a follow-up story, you know, with her family and just sort of keeping the focus on how extraordinary it is because there are young women in India right now that need to make that connection and just understand that they have aspirations. You can achieve anything. It's it's quite phenomenal. And, you know, from a journalistic perspective, this was also a really great experience for me. So my editor on the piece at The Atlantic is South Asian. The person who was in charge of the art for the piece was South Asian. And we all felt really invested in the piece and wanted to, to just tell a really rich story. And I also you know, spoke with Kamala Harris's uncle in India. And it was funny because it was, it was like talking to one of my own uncles. You know, <laughs> yeah. it, it, there's just, you just sort of felt this connection there. And uh, yeah, so it was a it was a great experience writing that piece. I feel like I know everything there is to know about Kamala Harris and her mother. <laughs> wow, that's amazing. Well, the energy that you all put into it truly came through, and it prompted me literally to reach out to you for this interview and the other amazing work that you've done as well, which I'm going to include in the podcast notes. And, you know, my next question is, according to the new book, Reckoning, Journalism's Limits and Possibilities, despite longstanding efforts to increase the employment of underrepresented minorities in the media, their participation in broadcasting and newspapers remains woefully inadequate. As a result, the depth and range of stories that are being covered is unnecessarily narrow. It is one of the reasons I was inspired to launch this podcast series. So my question for you is, would you agree with this statement? And what other comments might you have on this topic as one of the few diverse female writers and journalists in North America? So I think that when you have diversity on all fronts, race, gender, ethnicity, even ideology, I think what happens is you push the boundaries of discourse around 
topics that are of pressing social concern. So the conversation just gets bigger. It gets more nuanced. You see things from more perspectives and it just leads to a better conversation. And I think, you know, we talked about immigration. I think that's a perfect example of an area where I think the media could really benefit from a a diversity of perspectives. So immigration is typically covered in the media in the context of national security and borders, right? It's a, that's the context that we talk about when we talk about immigration. And that, if, you know, if I'm being, if I'm being blunt, that's a white centered perspective because people are coming into our country and that's kind of the perspective that we're bringing to the coverage. You don't see nearly as much coverage of immigration in the context of business or science or medicine or the economy or childcare or all of the other ways that immigrants are an engine for sort of economic and ingenuity in this country. That's immigration also, but we don't see it from that perspective. And I think, you know, more, more diverse voices could really help in that regard. I think, you know, COVID-19 is a, is another one. There's sort of the cliche of the South Asian doctors, but where are the stories about the role they're playing in the pandemic now and saving people's lives, right? That's also immigration. So there's such a broad depth and range of stories about immigration that we can tell that I think get missed sometimes because of that lack of, of diversity. I think politics is another one. We're starting to see more Desi people run in elections. We're starting to see more engagement from South Asians politically. And there are nuances to that electorate that are really important to understand if you want to understand South Asians in politics and sort of how they they engage with politics. And what you tend to see is the media lumping Asians together as a political electorate. But there are huge differences in that group among Asians and then among South Asians specifically. So that's another area where I think uh, you really the media could benefit from more diversity in terms of the, the people who are covering it. I will say that I think that the media is trying, generally speaking. So I, for the Atlantic piece uh, about Kamala Harris's mother, as well as another piece I wrote for Politico about Kamala Harris as well, I was contacted by editors at those publications to write those pieces. And that usually, you know, as I'm a freelancer, that usually doesn't happen. I reach out to editors, I pitch stories, and they take them or leave them. Sometimes where I've been contacted by an editor, it has been because it is a story about about South Asians. And that, you know, that's, it's a tricky thing because on one hand, it can feel a bit tokeny, especially if those are the only stories that they're reaching out to you to write about. But on the other hand, it makes sense that they would want a South Asian to write that. And so I think it's a fine line for editors to walk. And I think many are doing the best they can. You know, I tend to give people the benefit of good intentions. And I think that most people in the media want and believe that more diversity is needed. They just don't know exactly how to go about doing that. And you think we've gotten to a place where there's so much divisiveness, at least in this country, along political lines in the media that I have um, notably a couple of episodes with Hindu Republican women. And I actually was encouraged to consider this viewpoint for a lot of different reasons. But Mayor Usha Reddy, who is in Kansas, had indicated, well, absolutely, their perspective as very proud, devout Hindus, and yet very invested in the Republican Party is a compelling viewpoint. And so having them on was very enlightening because 
they are immigrants from India, have been threatened by China their entire lives. And so their perspective is also geopolitical sometimes. And even if we don't agree with it, I really want to hear it. Absolutely. You know, I think we have this tendency to fall into caricature and think that we know a certain group. And, you know, a great example of that is evangelical Christians in the United States. And I have written a couple of pieces about evangelicals in this up in this recent political cycle. And what piqued my interest in that was that we have this narrative about evangelical Christians in this country. And certainly there's some truth to it that, you know, large majority supported the current president in this and in the past election. But there is a significant group of evangelicals that we're not. And I think what we tend to fall into one dimensional narratives. And I think that sort of gets at what you were talking about, where, you know, these are, <laughs> these are complex groups and complex issues, and they're multidimensional. And I don't think the media always does a great job of covering and capturing the complexity of the issues that we're dealing with. Well, thank you so much for that answer. And really, we can't thank you enough for taking the time out of your busy schedule to join us. And all I can say is I hope to see you back again. Rika Sharma Rani. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you.